Hello, everybody. This is Aaron Good. You're listening to the American Exception Podcast. For today's episode, we have assembled a stellar cast to discuss the September 9th, 2001 assassination of Ahmad Shah Massoud, commander of Afghanistan's anti-Taliban Northern Alliance. With his murder at the hands of al-Qaeda operatives, the main roadblock to U.S. intervention in Afghanistan was blown away. We will be talking about this fateful assassination with Pepe Escobar and Peter Dale Scott. Back in December of 2020, Peter Dale Scott and I wrote a groundbreaking article on Massoud's murder. Peter, of course, is a retired UC Berkeley English professor, a renowned poet, and the legendary scholar who essentially invented the study of parapolitics and deep politics. He's the author of numerous books of poetry and prose, including Coming to Jakarta, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, The Road to 9-11, and The American Deep State. Last September, Peter and I were delighted when Asia Times editor-at-large Pepe Escobar cited our work in his own article about Massoud, published on the 20th anniversary of the assassination. Escobar was one of the last journalists to speak to Massoud before his death. He has been the guy writing about the new Silk Road in China and Central Asia for the last 20 years. We are also joined by the illustrious John Kiriakou. John is the courageous CIA whistleblower who went to jail for exposing the CIA's outrageously criminal and highly immoral torture program. All right, we are here today with John Kiriakou. We are honored today to also have Peter Dale Scott and Pepe Escobar with us. Uh, gentlemen, it's great to be here with you all. Absolute pleasure. Uh, looking forward to this. Okay, so Pepe Escobar, you were one of the last Westerners to see Masood, uh, Ahmad Shah Masood alive. And if so, there's nobody better to ask this question. Uh, could you summarize who he was and, and what's important about him as a historical figure? Absolutely. He Essentially, he was a great uh, Afghan nationalist hero. Uh, he had a Che Guevara side, let's put it this way. And he also had a ruthless uh, uh, crypto-Islamist side as well. So he was a very complex personality. Uh, born in, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, he, he studied in the Lycée Francais in Kabul. So it was very interesting because he understood French perfectly well. He didn't speak French. He understood French perfectly well. So he was acquainted since he was a kid with French culture, at least, if not wider European culture. Then he studied engineering. And uh, uh, a twist of fate led him to the jihad, the anti-Soviet jihad in the 80s. He was one of the top commanders of the jihad. So these top commanders, they were always uh, passing through or they were connecting in Peshawar, uh, the capital of the tribal areas, with differences, uh, different sorts of alliances, different sorts of finance. Uh, so Masood was a very independent. Uh, he was, the, for, first of all, because he was Tajik and most of the other of the other uh, uh, commanders were Pashtuns. Uh, Russia and China, or Russia much later. Uh, so, so I was thinking about Russia and China uh, nowadays. At the time, it was in fact uh, Iran. 
So the Tajiks uh, in Iran or in Tajikistan, of course, they were they had a connection with Masood. Uh, well, I mentioned Russia because uh, it was fantastic later after the jihad and after the fall of Kabul in '95 and the Taliban took power. Uh, the Russians began a reapproximation, and one of their top interlocutors, their, their only interlocutor, in fact, was Masood from '95 to 2001. With Iran, the same thing. But uh, uh, the, pro- the, the big problem started after the end of the jihad, in fact, from 88 to 89, because then there was a, a civil war period started in 92 until 95 when the Taliban took power, where Masood was directly confronting other uh, big, big characters of, uh, of the previous jihad, especially Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. And there was a time when Masood and Hekmatyar were bombing each other's forces in the outskirts and even inside Kabul. And this is absolutely horrendous because if if you visited Kabul after the civil war, during the Taliban um, reign, 96 to uh, 2001, most of Kabul was destroyed. And it was destroyed because of this uh, internecine war between uh, the Hazaras, Masood, and Hekmatyar. So he was not, of course, a saint. But considering uh, something that I saw for myself, and I've never seen this anywhere else in the world, uh, uh, a so-called government straight out of the 7th century Islam, in fact. This is what Afghanistan was. Uh, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. There was, it was an enormous a smuggling and a money laundering operation, which was financing the Taliban army at the time. And there was no social life except the precepts established by this uh, extremely radical vision of Islam that the Taliban had, which was from the Deobandis, a sect in India from the 19th century but with some elements of uh, Wahhabism and Salafi jihadism as well. It was one of the most demented regimes uh, in modern history, one might say. And obviously, the only people uh, in different parts of the country that could profit from it were the people who were linked to their smuggling rings, or especially, for instance, in the border between uh, uh, Afghanistan and Baluchistan a place called Spimbaldak, which was probably the, lar- the largest smuggling operation on earth at the time. Especially and Hekmatyar was one of the largest traffickers. Is that the lar- exactly, Peter, the largest traffickers. Uh, it was fascinating because when I went there the first time, Peter, uh, I-, I was afraid that I was going to be kidnapped, in fact. And in fact... Myself and my photographer, we were appropriated by one of the smugglers. <laughs> he protected us because he wanted to show us <laughs> how his business worked. So, this, so that was the way to deal with these people, you know. <laughs> so, uh, Masood, in uh, w- which will lead us to, our, uh, I, I would say, the main point of our conversation, which is what happened in two thousand one with Masood, right? Uh, like Aaron said, I was the 
the next before last Westerner who talked to Masood before he was assassinated on 9 9 2001. His last interview was a radio interview with Radio France when he was already preparing a counteroffensive against the Taliban. Uh, so that was probably one week before he was assassinated. And our interview was around August 20, August 20, 22nd, something like that. In his village, Bazarak, in the Panjshir Valley. Uh, we were waiting for over a week to talk to him because he was exactly preparing this counteroffensive. And meanwhile, we are guests of Masood. And the Mujahideen took us everywhere. It was amazing. They took us to, to visit the prisons, to talk to the Iraqis, Uyghurs, and Uzbeks that they had captured in different battles in northern Afghanistan. Uh, uh, they took us to see uh, Kuchi nomads who were migrating in summer to, to s- some of the hills and, uh, and valleys in the, in the Kush. Amazing stuff. And then Masood received us. And that was his last, uh, uh, I would say, relatively comprehensive uh, written interview, in fact. Fantastic, because I, I, was asking, I was asking the questions in French. He understood perfectly, and he immediately started uh, answering in, uh, in Dari. Without bypassing his own uh, translator, so he see he perfectly understood what I was asking, you know, without a need for a translator, but he felt comfortable expressing himself in uh, in Dari, and and at the time he said some things that were extremely important considering the context. This uh, remember this was uh, late August two thousand and one. Uh, this means three weeks before nine eleven, and. and he was concentrating on, on what he defined as an unholy alliance against him. And he said, look, I am the only one fighting this unholy alliance. Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and the Pakistani ISI, intelligence services. That's, it's slightly more complicated than that, in fact, because the ties between Al-Qaeda, and the Taliban, and the ISI, they work on different levels. It's an extremely complex story because it depends on who is your contact in, in, a, in a certain area or region. For instance, you can be a mid-ranked ISI commander in Islamabad, and your top contact is a commander in Nangahar province. But you don't know what other commanders in other parts of Afghanistan were doing or are were doing at the time, you know. And Al-Qaeda in Taliban is the same thing. Because at the time, uh, according to what we learned at the time, and especially later, the Taliban leadership, this means Mullah Omar and, and some of the notables around him in Kandahar at the time, we're getting slightly fed up with this uh, global prominence of uh, Al-Qaeda, and especially Osama bin Laden. And there have been some... Uh, uh, that, that's also a very tricky uh, uh, subject, because in the, according to the Pashtun Code, the Pashtun Wali, you simply cannot eject a host, uh, sorry, a guest, because you are the host. You are supposed to protect your host, even with your life. That's, that's one of the most uh, important tenets of the Pashtun Wali code. But uh, this host was becoming extremely uncomfortable for them. 
And obviously, don't forget that at the same time, the Taliban were still talking to the Americans. Why? Because of the famous <laughs> would-be TAP pipeline. At the time, it was Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan pipeline. India was not part of this possible arrangement. No? And they were haggling basically about transit fees. And it's crazy because they had been haggling about this since 1997. When the Taliban actually went to Houston, they were invited to go to Houston. They discussed widely in Houston. Then they went back. Then the discussions continued, and nothing happened. And and obviously the Americans are saying, "Look, uh, you're you're controlling 95 percent of the country. What if that five percent mounts a counteroffensive? What's going to happen?" <laughs> so it was an absolute mess, as as you know, all of you know very well, right? So. Uh, so the only resistance, let's put it this way, at the time was Masood. Uh, and he was quite confident. You know, he actually showed me some maps after our interview. So look, we're going to retake this place, Talokan, in, uh, uh, in the northeast part of Afghanistan, not far from the Panjir. And from, if we retake over, and from over there, we can start sinking maybe Kunduz and other places. You know, So he, he had a master plan to start conquering parts of the Northeast, let's put it this way. Um, well, and then we all know what happened on 9-9, which uh, I assume uh, Aaron is going to introduce the theme now for all of us. Right. So our Covert Action Magazine article was published in December of 2020. And it came, it was a long time coming because Peter had sent me um, a manuscript uh, that we were going, that we we're still planning to put into, uh, get published as a book somewhere with a number of essays. But this stuff on Masood was really dynamite, I thought, and had not been published elsewhere. And um, a, a covert Jeremy Kuzmarov contacted us. And so we eventually set about trying to polish it and, and get it ready. And the heart of it, Peter had already really written. So, um, uh, I'll summarize the uh, the earlier part of it, but Masood was blown up by some suicide bombers. And the story of how that came to happen was very muddled and contradicted by reports in the West, and it was never really put into a coherent narrative. But what Peter had discovered was that the order seems to have originated with the blind sheikh um, Omar Abdel Rahman, who had been imprisoned after his role in the original World Trade Center bombing and related terrorist conspiracy charges, but before that had been protected by the CIA and allowed into the country multiple times into the U.S. He came and in, been in on a, what we call a CIA visa. The, the, the consul didn't want to issue a visa to him because he was part of the Islamic Brotherhood in Egypt. A, a terrorist by any standard, but the CIA needed terrorists for things they were doing in Bosnia. So, uh, so he came in uh, over the objections of Mr. Springman, the consul. Right, and this is the, this is that key period. Which, which, the more you understand what happened after the uh, Mujahideen victory in uh, Afghanistan, and you think, well, these guys are being used all throughout Central Asia and the Balkans. Al-Qaeda was, and really up very close to 9-11 in Kosovo, 
even while they're still carrying out attacks in, you know, the U.S.'s coal bombing and the... But that was one attack. Also. You know, let's not, let's not exaggerate. The first major attack against the Americans was the the bombing of the boat in Aden. That's right. Well, what wasn't the uh, the embassy attacks were before that, though? Well, all right, but let's say about the embassy attacks. That the one in Kenya was masterminded by uh, another uh, another Egyptian that had also been brought in and was working at Fort Bragg, and uh, he would have been arrested in Canada. But he said, "Don't uh, the RCMP." picked him out because he came to meet a terrorist, and they knew it was a terrorist. And so they said, uh, he gave them a piece of paper and said, phone this number and you will release me. And they phoned the number. It was the FBI in San Francisco. They released him, and that same year, he went to uh, Kenya and cased out the embassy there. That was the beginning of the embassy bombing. You know, we should add, too, that this is actually not uncommon. I, I hope that our that our viewers don't think, oh my God, this is an anomaly. Some crazy CIA officer or FBI officer decided to, to let a terrorist into the country. This is actually a policy. They do this all the time. And so as insane as it sounds, um, it, it's something that happens and it's something for which there is just about no oversight at all. Yeah, this is a recurring theme here with with uh, these characters. The the person Peter was mentioning is Ali Muhammad, who we've we've talked about and written about in some of our articles, and he's written about in the Road to Nine Eleven. And then with the blind sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, the person who figures in the Masood assassination, he was also involved in a murder, uh, and, and his involvement was kind of erased in the official proceedings. And he he was also involved in the the first bombing of the World Trade Center. The 1993 bombing. Mm -hmm. Those were all those people. They were trained by Ali Muhammad, and their uh, their sort of intellectual uh, mentor was uh, me with names. The the man we were just talking about, Abdel Rahman. Abdel Rahman, yes. Who, by the way, when the when Masood is murdered, he's in Springfield Penitentiary in Illinois or Missouri maximum security, and yet he was able to order the killing of Massoud in Afghanistan. And that's what we have to talk about. That part of the story is inexplicable, and nobody has forced the state to produce an explanation for it, how this happens. this The story kind of is incoherent. It doesn't make any sense the way that it's presented to us. So the order to to kill Masood, apparently, and the letter that, that enables it to happen and the writing of this introduction letter all the way in Afghanistan that eventually leads to this explosion that kills Masood originates from a federal facility where uh, um, Omar Abdel Rahman is held, the blind sheikh, one of the most notorious terrorists in the U.S. at this time, um, who had been involved in the first World Trade Center attack and then on conspiracy, a slew of conspiracy charges in 1995, he, he's sent to this prison. And his go-between was a postal worker named Al-Sattar. Um, and as Peter says, he in Brooklyn, who had visited him in all the way in Springfield, right? And to to speak to him. Now, this is a person who must have been under surveillance uh, i mean we know that they were under surveillance because that's how it came out in the new york times article later that this letter was 
you know, that was originated from this source. But he had to have been under surveillance. Abdel Rahman had to have been under surveillance in his communication when he was in prison anyway. I mean, it's... Aaron, may I comment on that? This this just goes to show you how either the entire system is broken or there's some sort of of a conspiracy. And it may be a conspiracy of silence. It may be as simple as that. Omar Abdurrahman was in a communications management unit, right? Inside a maximum security penitentiary. Um, Coincidentally, he was in the same communications management unit that Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower, is now housed in. It's the same communications management unit where John Gotti died. It's the same communications management unit that currently holds the last surviving member of the Abu Nidal organization. And the whole reason to have a communications management unit is to have literally blanket coverage on a person. 24-hour-a-day surveillance of written and spoken communications. There is no human contact without a team from the Bureau of Prisons listening, watching, making copies, taking notes. You can't do anything, and I mean this quite literally, without an entire team from the Bureau of Prisons knowing that you're doing it And if they suspect anything untoward at all, they're supposed to report it directly to the FBI. So how in the world was Omar Abdurrahman able to communicate with people on the outside and not just once to say, hello, how's your mom doing, but to plan a major terrorist attack right under the nose of the Bureau of Prisons and the FBI? Listen, I don't like either one of those organizations, but I can't imagine that they're so stupid and so incompetent that they just missed it. They don't miss things like that. You know, and then I want to add, too, from, from Al Sattar's perspective, he knew that he was being surveilled all the time. He was confident about it. He felt, that's why he felt he was protected, that he was, do, he, he was doing things that were, would normally get people picked up, but he wasn't worried about it because it's not like he would go, I, I'm, I'm not saying that he would, sit down and have coffee with his handlers. But no, he knew he was being surveilled. He knew that this was protected. He'd been doing it for a long time. Messages back and forth to a man in London. Al-Siri, is that right, uh, the man in London? Right, that's where the letter, it goes from Abdel Rahman in prison. Uh, and it, which, it's very I, interesting, right after, right after Masood was murdered, was within a month, Al-Syrian London was arrested for the murder of Massoud. They were on, the British were onto it, and then something got to the British, and they said, no, no, don't go there. So but then Al-Syria was released and forgotten about. But the true story, I don't think, I don't think anyone can contest the simplicity of this narrative that uh, the, the blind sheik, Al-Rahman, who's had great status uh, even in, in Al-Qaeda because Al-Zawah, I can't pronounce his name, Zawahiri was also Brotherhood and uh, and respected. And so this the, the order goes from him via Sattar, who's a messenger, that's all, mm-hmm. to Al-Siri in London, who has status. Then it goes to Al-Sayyaf, 
who is an exactly. who is the leader of the in the jihad who really was in the pocket of the Saudis. He was the he was the Arab the Saudi representative in the coalition. Exactly. And uh, also for that reason, uh, respected by the CIA. And then uh, these people come with a letter that is uh, with, with the, these credentials and this background, and that's why Massoud admitted them to be, they posed as journalists, and he admitted them for this fatal interview. It's such a simple story, but yes. it's nowhere in the public narrative. Exactly. Uh, uh, when I read your piece, Peter and Aaron, I was like, wow. So they connected all the dots previous to those uh, two uh, Tunisian Moroccans arriving at the Panjir. So I, I got the end of the story, in fact, when I went back there. But you guys made all, and I have not read that anywhere else. Of course, at the time I was not reading the American media, 2001 or 2002. But uh, I, I would know what they were publishing about 9-11 and, and Masood, of course. And then, of course, this whole narrative disappeared for almost 20 years, right? And let's put in that it was covered up. They, put, they substituted a, an alternative narrative. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that, uh, Randy, uh, you should talk about it, Aaron, that the, the, the laptop that turned up, which blamed it all on, on uh, essentially on Bin Laden. This is the laptop that uh, surfaced uh, uh, simultaneous to that fake Osama Bin Laden tape, wasn't it? Was at the same time, no- November 2001, right? November, December, yes, around mm-hmm. there, yes. Yeah, the story appeared in the Wall Street Journal on New Year's Eve 2001, and it really is a case of uh, Deus Ex Laptop, or something. There's a reporter. He's stumbling through a, a bazaar in Kabul, and next to some Persian rugs, maybe he just sees a laptop and says, "Oh, I'll just buy this laptop." And it's an Al. I know this is ridiculous. <laughs> with all the secrets and uh, all the the secret files, and it tells you that Bin Laden ordered the Masood assassination, and the letter apparently because the letter was drafted by Muhammad Al Zawahiri, the brother of. Ayman al-Zawahiri, Muhammad al-Zawahiri, who had also been kind of a U.S. cutout in Kosovo, apparently working with the KLA uh, in the Kosovo conflict. But, you know, this sort of Aaron, frenemy, Aaron, frenemy thing. Sorry to interrupt, but how, how, how did they know that the letter was drafted by al-Zawahiri? Something in uh, on the files that there mm-hmm. was a, a document and the author listed on the document was... Um, Muhammad al Zawahiri. That was the way mm. it was. It was reported, but then at the end, the funny thing about it is that later in 2016, there's another terror attack in Britain, and Al Siri enters the news again. In a and then there's an so there's an article in the UK Independent where it says that Al Siri admitted that he had drafted the letter of introduction that led to the Masood assassination, but you know was still free for some for some re- unknown reasons. And so they're acknowledging that he had done that, but there's actually a story for that, and none of it involves uh, Muhammad al-Zawahiri. I mean, they they basically just erase that earlier part because mm-hmm. he's back in the news, and so it it makes no sense whatsoever. There, the the narrative doesn't make any sense. But 
it doesn't matter these these days it seems like there's just there's no follow up background it. here is that just as the CIA is uh, harboring terrorists active terrorists in America so MI6 in London is doing the same thing with a number of British they they prefer to let them act because the, these people are not very skilled in their uh, their counter um, intelligence and they uh, they're sending messages out and MIC MI6 is able to trace where the messages go so they're acquiring a great deal of intelligence about what's happening but meanwhile they're allowing people to be murdered so uh, it's it's a, a very dubious practice i would say i mean we could there are other cases that we could bring in where the same thing has happened again, like the murder of the Wall Street journalist in Pakistan, for example. Daniel Pearl. Da- Daniel Pearl, yes. Well, oof, that that story about that, that story would warrant a new uh, podcast, Aaron. <laughs> right, that's a, that's another rabbit hole that I don't think that we yeah. can go down, but it is another interest. It's it's in yeah, that same. From an overview, these things are being allowed to happen because. They these people get promotions by gathering age, uh, assets and gathering intelligence, and meanwhile the world is 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 suffering terribly. Right, and so this this laptop angle comes across, or it enters into the story. And if you look on Wikipedia or wherever these mainstream sources, and you try to f- figure out what happened with the Masood assassination, we'll just say it was ordered by Al Qaeda. But the inf- the the substantiation of that is very dodgy. And kind of, I mean, it amounts to it being falsified in terms of the prevailing narrative. And it, and interestingly, when Massoud entered the consciousness again because of the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and also the withdrawal and his son being poised to potentially serve as like a new Mujahideen in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. potentially, um, they, th- there wasn't any interest in really looking into the assassination much anyway. So it, No, it, no it's, at all. Nothing. I mean, it just shows you the sort of the prevailing uh, cosmology that they that they create here for us. So, and I think it was Peter. How did you eventually? The the real interesting uh, kernel of this whole thing is the Abdel Rahman. How did you? What do you remember? How you came across this and why it stuck out? How it stuck in your mind when so many other people have overlooked it? Pepe Pepe had a story about how. And this we haven't mentioned this yet, but it's crucial to our story that um, <clears throat> Massoud was a, a, an intense nationalist. He took aid from every, took from the Soviets, from the Indians, and from the Americans. He counted very much on getting aid from the Americans, but he was very adamant that he did not want to see U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, if you have people in Washington who are planning. Uh, an invasion of Afghanistan to oust the Taliban, they have to get rid of Massoud. Massoud is a... Another thing we haven't mentioned yet is that the Panjshir in northeastern Pakistan is almost inaccessible. It's a a deep mountain valley that uh, at the back end of it is access to China. The, the story is that the British mapped it that way so that they could have a back door for getting opium into China in the 19th century. But it's inaccessible. And uh, then, of course, you have the Hindu Kush, and across the north, 
you have other lords, and Masud was their leader in what the Americans called the Northern Alliance. But the Americans wanted precisely that territory to begin their invasion of Afghanistan. And here's Masood is saying, no, you can't do it. So uh, you're asking how I got onto it. Pepe said that he wouldn't have a U.S. troops. And then Ambassador Peter Thompson, well, he was not the ambassador to Kabul then, but he had been. And he was a friend of uh, Masood's. He saw him very shortly before you. And that was the main thing that Masood had to say to him. No U.S. troops. So here is a man who's saying no U.S. troops in Afghanistan. America, sort of a key date is September 4th, when they agree in principle. We haven't seen the papers, so we don't know exactly what they agreed to. Mm -hmm. But essentially under Clinton, the idea was we get Osama bin Laden. And then you have an alternative strategy. We... Uh, go into Afghanistan and make it safe for America and make it safe for oil, by the way, because there are now big U.S. investments, Chevron and Exxon are in Kazakhstan, and they have the investment, but they don't have any U.S. troops to protect them. Uh, That was all going to change when, uh, in short order, after 9-11, America invaded Afghanistan, invaded Iraq. That was what... uh, uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney, when they were in the project for the New American Century back in, well, Clinton was still president. They were they were saying we have to have a forward strategy. We can't just sit back and try to run the world from inside the United States. Well, they got their forward strategy, and we're still the world is still suffering for that. That uh, it involved, in the case of Afghanistan. Uh, they had to uh, get rid of Massoud. He died on the 9th, and on September the 10th, they take out this plan that they agreed to on the 4th. They refine it at a lower level. The, the principles have already agreed. It eventually is published, a version of it is published as NSPD 9 um, for in, I think, October, but it was all finally agreed to on a presidential level on the evening of September the 11th. Because even before. The towns were down. Uh, the towns Peter, were also before, a necessary part yeah. of this plan. Even before, Peter. You Sorry? know that, you know, uh, uh, this, uh, in, let's say, invasion of Afghanistan was already agreed, I would say, at least two or three months before September. Uh, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you two examples. The G20, um, sorry, the G20, the G8 in Genova, in Italy, in July. Mm-hmm. I, I later confirmed with my Italian diplomatic sources that this was discussed by Bush and Berlusconi. Ah, we're going, we're going mm-hmm. to Afghanistan soon, probably in the fall. And this was exactly the same conversation that uh, the former Pakistani Minister of Foreign Affairs, Niaz Naik, later reconfirmed to some of us in Islamabad. Yes, absolutely. The Americans were saying that, yes, we have plans in place, maybe in October, uh, before the first snow falls in the Indukush. I think the issue is 
Were they just going to go in with a small force exactly. and, get, and get Osama exactly. bin Laden? Exactly. Or were they really going to take out the Taliban at the same time? And Correct. I don't know when that said. It was debated the whole year, back to yes. January. It's been a very major topic of conversation. Uh, I think if, if uh, anyone on the, wants to know the truth, if we want to go back to our country where our history is based on the truth and not on laptops that are discovered uh, in shops in, in Pakistan, then we should get the documentation of all the planning that went through that year. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, it's, you know, we're still, we, we, we still have a state of emergency affecting this country and may have been a factor, I believe, on January the 6th of this year, mm. all of this out of the bad politics under the administration of a president who was elected in 2000 by a vote of five to four in the Supreme Court. It's terrible. Right, and that's one of the more astounding things these days is how the George W. Bush has been sort of rehabilitated in the public. Well, thanks to the Democrats. Yeah. Well, I mean, compared to some of the thanks to the Democrats, people, he's, he's an elder statesman now. He is. Yeah. He is. Because the Democrats convinced convince themselves that nobody could possibly be worse than George W. Bush. And then we got Donald Trump. And all of a sudden, Bush looked pretty good to the Democrats. They're the ones that brought him back into the mainstream. It didn't help that Obama more continued so many of Bush's policies that if you're going to criticize Bush, you're almost implicitly in criticizing Obama as well. So what, are the, what can the Democrats do? Yeah, you're exactly right. It, Obama, I, I love this statistic. In, in Bush's last month as president, he killed four people with the use of a drone. In Obama's last month as president, he killed 425 people with drones. So uh, there, there was a it was a continuation of Bush foreign policy for eight years of Obama. Exactly. There was no difference, right? Well, I, yeah, I agree. That, um, you know, poor Obama. You know, he, he he wanted to be another Roosevelt, but Roosevelt had a political machine. He had a base that he could then change Washington. Obama was selected from on high. And uh, he had no base whatsoever. So I think his intentions were good. I think it's absurd that he got the Nobel Peace Prize, but he did say some good things. But then when he, he came to Washington, Washington just absorbed him. And this is the, the dilemma we have now. I mean, Trump was a dangerous man, but I believe you can say that the Trump administration was the first one since maybe Carter or maybe even earlier, where America did not launch offensive military occupations against a country that had done nothing to it. And uh, he, I, I think his, he, I don't have any respect for him as a diplomat, but under his presidency, the uh, treaty was worked out with the, uh, the agreement worked out with the uh, Taliban for the withdrawal. The withdrawal was very ugly, but it was it was going to be ugly. That was certain on the nine eleven, the day or the, the, when America went in. There is it's not going to be a happy end, exit from a country where you're not wanted and not liked and don't belong. 
Yeah, it's horrendous. There's a young woman who I taught and she's still at the school where my wife teaches and we live on the, on the campus and she's from Afghanistan and she's, her parents are trying to escape the country um, and uh, get asylum. But it's, it's, it's heartbreaking because this is, it all traces back to, you know, if you want to really trace it back to the seventies when we decide to get involved there, especially at the, you know, latter stage of Carter's presidency with supporting the Mujahideen. It's just a, it's a rolling tragedy, but if we can get this, I want to zero in on this Masood case because there's another character that we already briefly mentioned a little bit, but we, we don't discuss him too much in our article. Pepe does a little bit more in his, uh, Abdul Rasul Sayef. He's still around and is still a figure in Afghanistan politics. And we said he was a Saudi connected and CIA connected, which seems to be of a piece with a lot of this whole assassination story. Is there anything, do you have any other insights about this, this fellow, um, Pepe, and, and what is his significance of being involved in this? And how has he been able to still be a, a politically viable person after being involved in these intrigues? Yeah, he was one of the notables in Peshawar in the early 80s, né? Uh, alongside Masood, uh, Hekmatyar, Yunis uh, Kalis. He was one of the top commanders. And obviously he was, uh, uh, there was a, Hekmatyar had a good relationship with the Saudis, but uh, the preferred Saudi asset was Sayaf. And that explains a lot about the latter as well. Absolutely. Um, Sayaf, uh, uh, when I got the back end of the story that you guys, (laughs) years later, masterfully organized, I finally got a a definitive confirmation by Northern Alliance people in the Panjir that Sayaf facilitated the safe passage of these two uh, suicide bombers to get to the Panjir. And it's interesting because as soon as they got there, uh, the crew around Masood, they said, well, these guys don't look like journalists. They're behaving in a very, very weird way. So they were suspicious from the beginning, but they couldn't do anything about it because Sayaf, apparently Sayaf even made a phone call to, intro- to formally introduce these two before they arrived at the Panjir. So he was absolutely instrumental to, to, to finalize the plot. Let's put it this way. And this was confirmed by several sources in the Panjir. What they didn't know is what you guys later discovered, where this letter originated. They had no idea about the blind sheikh or uh, the Egyptian uh, terrorist in London. Nothing, nothing. The only thing they could confirm was Sayaf. Right. Yeah, that, that's, and he's still, he's still around. Can I just say that Sayaf had status with the, back in the jihad because the money was coming from America and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Perhaps principally from Saudi Arabia. So uh, Sayaf there representing the Saudis, of course he was going to be an important person in the, uh, I, you say he was a commander. I, do, I don't know how he was in the field. Uh, you know, Masood. No, a, a sort of supervisor, Peter, not a commander. Yeah. Uh, hands uh-huh. on like Masood or uh, Hikmatyar. Right. Uh-huh. That's what I, 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 yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was also given, uh, as as we point out in our in our article, that the there was money given to the Northern Alliance after uh, 9-11 but it was more used to break up the Northern Alliance 
And one of the recipients of a big piece of a big uh, portion of money was Al Sayef. So this was, exactly. you know, he benefited from from this. But in fact, there, the Americans were distributing suitcases full of cash all over the place. I I saw by myself what they did in Tora Bora. They arrived in Tora Bora, four special forces in a in a Toyota Land Cruiser with a suitcase full of cash. They gave to the local commander who was apparently passing intelligence to the B-52s bombing Tora Bora. And then we later learned from one of the Mujahideen that, ah, they're bombing the wrong mountain. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think the Americans wanted to take out Osama bin Laden. No, they didn't. They needed Osama bin Laden. Yeah, exactly. If you're, going to, if you're going to raise the American thing about this terrible risk of a man in Afghanistan who's going to I don't know, sort of blow up every capital of the every the, the fifty states. He has to be there. Mm. So it was a deliberately muffed operation. They didn't want to get him. They did want to get troops into Afghanistan. And yes. They without worrying about how they'd ever get them out. The CIA has an old joke that uh, you can't you can't buy an Afghan warlord. But you can certainly rent one. You can rent one, yeah. <laughs> and 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 that's what they that's what they did. Um, it wasn't unusual to throw sacks of money containing millions of dollars out of the side of of a helicopter. They used to do this all the time. And when people would say something, even if it was joking, they would say, "Look, intelligence is a cash business. That's just the way it is." And then they dropped leaflets from the air in Afghanistan, saying, uh, "Turn in, uh, turn in a terrorist, yes. and we will pay you money." That's right. So everybody, they, you know, you could, if you owed money to somebody, you would turn him in as a terrorist. He'd end up in Guantanamo. Yeah, that's that's why we ended up with eight hundred farmers and teenage boys in Guantanamo, and had to let them uh, let them all out. Because this was a result of blood feuds and bad debts and and family to family conflicts, it's it's one of the worst miscarriages of justice in the last century. These CIA people think they're smart, and they're smart in a way that gets them promotions. But they're they're not smart in terms of I mean, forget even morals and and ethics. It's it's just bad strategy on it from a purely Machiavellian point of view. It is not good for America what these people are doing. So this whole time period, the, the time period leading up to this, you have U.S. encroachments. And this is really starts with the fall of the Soviet Union. You have U.S. encroachments into Central Asia, and it's intertwined with jihadi operations. So, and, and we trace this out, and Peter, I borrow a lot in my dissertation and when I've written on this elsewhere from Peter's work, especially the road to 9-11 has a great chronology of this, but it really begins in that... You could say it begins in Azerbaijan, uh, in a, with this operation involving uh, Mega Oil, which is a proprietary of. Um, a, we still don't really understand who was behind it. If it was Pentagon or uh, intelligence or, or big oil or a combination of the three, oh, and they eventually big oil. And I think that it was British as well as American. Uh, 
And that caught my eye because you've got a little airline that's part of this story. And the, the, the big names in the airline were big names in Iran-Contra and big names in Vietnam before that. So there's un, unquestionably a big American involvement in this. And they essentially brought in terrorists into Azerbaijan in order to get rid of a, I would say, pro-Soviet uh, uh, head. I've forgotten all the names now, and replace him with one who would welcome in uh, BP, British Petroleum. And uh, they, they were the, the BP, I think, were the big benefit, benefiters from this. Yeah. And establish a, it became a kind of dynasty and there's a corrupt head there who was uh, involved. His people were involved in phony invest or corrupt investments with Donald Trump. So you corrupt a country, and the the, the results are long lasting. Well, right. and they- the Aliyev dynasty, right? Which yes. is they owe their wealth and their power to America. And BP, as Peter just mentioned, parts of Afghan, uh, of Azerbaijan are actually BP country. The sovereignty mm-hmm. is exercised by BP. Uh, I, I experienced that myself when, when I was, uh, I was following a little bit of the BTC pipeline leaving Baku mm-hmm. on a Jeep. And I was intercepted by a BP Jeep saying, no, you have no right <laughs> to be here. I said, Look, this is a public highway. I say, no, this is our highway. Parallel to the pipeline. Also, that, you know, so sovereignty is BP sovereignty in large parts of Afghanistan. And crossing villages before the pipeline gets to Georgia, it's exactly the same thing. And it's true because Azerbaijan was very important because the beginning of the, let's say, the first big Western finance pipeline of the late 20th century was the BTC to bypass at the same time Russia and Iran. So Mm -hmm. it was Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Turkey. And this was personally chosen by the Americans. And one of the key envoys who went to negotiate the BTC in Baku was Brzezinski, no less. It makes perfect sense, really. I'd like to ask you a question, because what happened in Afghanistan is remarkably similar to what some people have alleged has been happening now with Daesh or with ISIS-K in in Afghanistan. There's talk that there was about this. Is it true that there was... Uh, an air, airplanes taking uh, fighters out of the Kurds and others out of eastern Turkey and shipping them to eastern Afghanistan? Is, or is that Peter, just a rumor? One of these airlifts, believe it or not, even showed up in a BBC piece, I think was uh, two years ago or a year ago. Even the BBC reported. Oh, uh, and at that. the time, was uh, practic- I, I think it was almost 1,000 jihadis. And it was a sort of Air America from uh, uh, northeast Syria and uh, western Iraq and all the way to Khorasan. Yeah. 
which is uh -huh. not Khorasan. It's Eastern Afghanistan. These yes. ISIS-K, uh, uh, the, ba the basis for these ISIS-K jihadists is not in Khorasan, which is uh, historically... Nangahar. Nangahar. Exactly. Fr fr uh, it's from uh, uh, Western Persia through Northern Afghanistan. It's in Nangahar province. It's in Eastern Afghanistan. That's where they are. But it's it's very similar to what happened with it is. oil in, in is. Azerbaijan, where they was in, in the opposite direction. They were bringing people from Afghanistan and planting them in Azerbaijan to assist in this overthrow yeah. of the uh, of, of the head of Afghanistan. So, Peter, you know better than all of us. It's the same modus operandi, isn't it? Well, I'm very interested in this BBC article because I think we should be made aware of this because here is on the very day that Biden announces that we are leaving Afghanistan, he also announces that we are declaring war on ISIS Khorasan. And it's alarming because Khorasan essentially is an area Historically, it's stretched from Western Afghanistan to the to the Caspian Sea. To the Caspian Sea. So, so I don't know where exactly it's it's obviously going to be low level warfare below the horizon, as they say, more drones. Uh, this is uh, I, the drone is a very lamentable. I mean, it, of all the inhuman ways of fighting war, drones that. The, the percentage of uh, collateral damage is enormous with drones. Yes. Drones are not don't have the brains to say, oh, no, we better not do this. There are children here, but <laughs> it's too late usually by then. Um, well, in fact, it, Peter, it's a relocation of the Obama drone wars, which were basically against the Pakistani tribal tribal areas, north Waziristan. Yeah. And now it's being relocated to Nangahar province, probably. Probably, yes. And we have this, you know, this uh, journalist, Rhoda, who was a captain, an American journalist who was in, in, being held by the uh, terrorists in that province. And so he experienced that thing. Every time you heard the tick, 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 tick of the, the drone coming, it was like the British in World War II with the V1s and the V2s. The V2s killed more people, but the V1s terrorized far more people because you heard them coming slowly. You heard them coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have my own uh, strange ISIS story, and it, it kind of, to me, it seems of a piece with this, what we're talking about here. It, to go back to Azerbaijan from there, those jihadis go and launch, you know, or, into Chechnya and all these places, you know, um, Chechnya and in Uzbekistan later there's attacks and this leads to a bigger US presence there and most of the things that they are doing are it's hard to, to find too much of what they're doing during this period before 9/11 that does not advance the geopolitical interests of the United States as laid out by people like Brzezinski and uh the project for a new american century and so this is something that I mean I'm not the first person to make this observation but it just bears repeating and I know someone who worked in Jordan and worked for the uh, at the King's Academy as a teacher, right, which is established by the King of Jordan. And but and as I understand it, this happened before the Arab Spring even broke out. But the king would visit these um, 
teachers there because it's his own private school and that he set up, right? And they had Westerners teaching there and this guy left to come and teach it at my school. And that's how I knew him. He said that the King of Jordan came in one day and was talking about how there's going to be this uh, Islamist country that just kind of pops up out of nowhere and they're going to set up their own country and it's going to be really wild. And that this is, you know, this is in the cards when they were having a discussion about, you know, politics and looking at the Middle East and so on and events in the Middle East. And that he, the, the king of Jordan was known to be kind of loose tongue. And so he had these handlers and then they got kind of nervous and, and took him out of, the, out of the room. The guy that told me this is a, a middle of the road person politically. He's a, a smart guy, but he's, but he's not a political person, not at all anybody who you would call like a conspiracy theorist, although who, who isn't these days a conspiracy theorist in some ways. So... You know, this to me, like when, when we talk about ISIS-K and the implications of what we're talking about with these airlifts uh, and their emergence, uh, you know, right as the U.S. is exiting and their use of people who've been trained by the U.S. and their access to, you know, material and uh, the ability to be airlifted into places. I mean, where where is this where is this going? Do you have any sense of whether they're going to be able to have any kind of critical mass to start some sort of conflict? Or maintain the conflict, or is this a pipe dream of the U- of the U.S. that they can have uh, Mujahideen 2.0 or 3.0 at this point? I mean, where where does this seem to be headed in Afghanistan? Yes, it is. It is a pipe dream, absolutely, and uh, it, it will depend a lot on uh, uh, Taliban local intel, which they assure at least uh, official Taliban sources in Kabul that they have it under control. There was a press conference a few days ago where they were saying, well, now basically we know where they are and it is under control. Okay. It's not like that. It's more complicated than that. The thing is, what they're going to need, and I'm sure there is already a pre-agreement on that, because this has been discussed at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and by the, the Kremlin special envoy to to Afghanistan, Zamir Kabulov, which is an absolutely first-class diplomat. Russian intel and Russian electronic surveillance will help the Taliban to identify these ISIS-K pockets in Angarhar. This, I'm, I'm sure this is going to happen. There's no question, because this is in the interest of all the players in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. How about the uh, Chinese, baby? and the, about, and the Ch- especially the Chinese, because because yes, uh, exactly. there are Uyghurs who have taken refuge in uh, yes, absolutely, absolutely, Peter. So uh, if if we combine local intel by Taliban commanders in the province with uh, Russian electronic surveillance, maybe we can have an adequate mix to keep this thing under control. So, uh, answering your question, uh, basically, Aaron, it's an American pipe dream. There's no question about it, and uh, because this this is not uh, like during Taliban times where we had Al Qaeda squadrons in uh, training in Afghanistan. That's a completely different story, and uh, and, there's, and there's no local support for ISIS K anywhere in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But you come back to the CIA. Uh, modus operandi. You just mentioned, Aaron, Uzbekistan, that there you had a perfect example 
You had an IMU, which was uh, a kind. They were um, Islamists. Islamists. They were not. They were not. They were Uzbeks. They were not Arabs at all. And yes. they were, so, <clears throat> the CIA commissioned the translation of the Quran into Uzbek for the IMU. And then was able to go to uh, I forget his name the the head of uh, of the um, head of the IMU uh, Peter was Shuma Namangani. No, but I'm talk I'm talking about the uh, the dictator who boiled his Karimov uh, Islam Karimov. <laughs> so they and they they had an agreement, and this was before well before nine eleven. Uh, to work with the Uzbek forces against the IMU, which the CIA had provided the Quran for. And uh, so you had a base waiting, K2, they called it, in Uzbekistan, which is how they were able to fly the troops into the Panjshir to begin the, uh, the, the uh, invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. So that. That worries me that uh, you're looking forward to a thing that's, you mentioned that the Russians will be there, the Chinese will be there to help. But what about the CIA's terrorists? Exactly. We don't know. We don't know because, uh, let's say, most of them are not in Afghanistan anymore. And And the new terrorists, let's put it this way, are Dash people flown in from Syria, Iraq, which, by the way, have no ground experience in Afghanistan. They have Mm -hmm. no local loyalties. They don't speak the languages. So they are completely isolated. Right. And this, I mean, you've written about this too, Pepe, and this might be the last thing we can talk about before before we we close here. But this is connected to, very much related to Xinjiang province and the, in the U.S., they have attempted to accuse the Chinese of genocide on really kind of dubious evidence, I think. Mm-hmm. When you look into what has happened in, in Xinjiang, there have been terrorist attacks. And then so the, the, the Chinese government has reason to be worried about Islamist terror because of actual attacks they've launched. I would say it's a virtual certainty that the usual suspects have promoted these networks that have carried out these attacks in Xinjiang. And then the well, Chinese respond, um, perhaps heavy-handedly or perhaps reasonably, and then we accuse them of, you know, a des- despotism, you know, uh, horrific authoritarianism, and so on. How important? Uh, why is Xinjiang so important uh, to the to the Chinese and thus to the West? Uh, you know, by extension, what is it about Xinjiang that that makes it such a key part in the, in the things that we've been talking about here? Wow, that should be three or four podcasts. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Let, let, let's give it the Hollywood uh, 25 word version, right? <laughs> well, um, all the big pipelines, all the major pipelines, the gas pipelines from uh, Turkmenistan, for instance, crossing Uzbekistan, and Power of Siberia 1 and 2, they arrive in Xinjiang. Number one. Number two. All the major corridors of the New Silk Roads, the Belt and Road Initiative, they cross Xinjiang. Uh, like, you know, my, my, my last trip before COVID, I went to three of these borders. I went to the Xinjiang 
Kazakh border, Xinjiang-Tajik border, and Xinjiang-Kyrgyz border. So I could see how uh, trade connectivity, let's put it this way, through the Belt and Road is increasing very, very fast on these three borders. Uh, in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, it's basically trucks. Uh, but in Kazakhstan, there are three different uh, borders, in fact, side by side. One for uh, passengers, one for people, passengers, uh, buses, etc. One for trucks, and the most important one for long, uh, very, very uh, long distance rail. Because everything that crosses from eastern China or from Sichuan in central China and it goes through Xinjiang, has to go through Xinjiang to get to Central Asia, and then Iran, and then different corridors via Iran, via Turkey, to get to Europe. Uh, and even if, if, if going to Russia, first the trains go to Kazakhstan, then they go to Russia, then they, they get the Trans-Siberian, and they cross the Trans-Siberian. So all these corridors go through Xinjiang. And... Uh, the Chinese, they started a campaign of, uh, let's say, developing Xinjiang over 20 years ago, in 1999, in fact. Uh, they, they used to call that at the time uh, Go West, the Go West campaign. And this was sort of, a, uh, let's say, a preamble for the New Silk Roads. Uh, the New Silk Roads, they started as an idea at the Ministry of Commerce in Beijing, in fact. And then it was elaborated as a foreign policy, overarching mechanism, actually defining China's foreign policy uh, as she came to power. And she ad adopted this concept to be his, his whole foreign policy, in fact. It's the expansion of BRI, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And it has been extremely successful because BRI was launched in 2013 uh, first in uh, Astana, now Nur Sultan, and in Jakarta, the Maritime Silk Road. Uh, according to the official uh, Chinese planning, which is absolute, something fascinating to read, we are only now entering the stage of implementation. So everything that's, that happened these past eight years, the Chinese consider was pre-planning. We're, we're just setting, setting up mechanisms here and there, you know, buying ports, uh, uh, building high-speed rail to Laos. Ah, it's just pre-planning. Now, 2021, we start the implementation, which, according to them, will go all the way to 2049. It, it's something of a, the ambition, uh, the, uh, you know, the scope is something really mind-boggling. And it's not only Eurasia, uh, as we know. It's Africa and parts of uh, uh, South America, Latin America as well. So Xinjiang is the key hub and the key node, not only for the development of, uh, let's say, the faraway provinces of China, but to interconnect East and Western China with Central Asia, their immediate neighbors, and then further on all the way to, to Europe. And that's why it's so important. So, so for them, as a matter of national security, everything that happens is in Xinjiang is non-negotiable. So we can understand their paranoia of having even uh, a bunch of uh, Wahhabis or Salafi jihadis or 
Al-Qaeda indoctrinated online, whatever that is, or remnants of Daesh, you name it, acting inside uh, Xinjiang uh, towns, especially, because basically it's a huge desert. You have the Northern Silk Road branch and the Southern Silk Road branch, which are, let's say, small villages, small towns and oases with a huge desert in the middle, the Taklamakan Desert. And only one big city, Urumqi, the capital, which is basically a, a big Chinese city transported to the middle of the desert, right? And Kashgar, where the Karakoram Highway starts, going all the way to, to uh, Islamabad, which is part of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Very, very important. So the most important project of the Belt and Road starts in Xinjiang as well. It's the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which basically is going to be a, a fantastic, by the way, uh, renewed Karakoram Highway from Kashgar to Islamabad. Later on, there's going to be railway as well. And later on, I would say probably in the next decade, if they needed a pipeline from Gwadar port in the Arabian Sea all the way to Xinjiang, once again, if they think they need it, uh, if they have other options of supplies, they, they won't need it. But this is a, a plan B and he already thought out, you know. So for all these reasons, it's uh, in terms of uh, uh, strategic importance, it's even more important than Tibet for China. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right, Peter. Yeah. But they, the, the Chinese are not very good in their minorities. Um, You're right. Yeah. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And well, I've I've been to Xinjiang four times, but last time was a few years ago. So it, it changed a lot on the ground, of course. And now for us uh, foreigners, it's very very difficult to travel in Xinjiang. It's practically impossible to get a visa for a foreign journalist to go to Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm going to try to work on this next year and have some Chinese uh, sponsors that would say, no, this guy is not a CIA spy, so he can go to see. It's the only way. <laughs> <laughs> that was but, fascinating. Uh, it, it's true, because the, the, just to give an idea, guys, the, the uh, Communist Party official who was responsible to pacifying Tibet, he was transferred to Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, for, for Beijing, they think that uh, he, he did a very good job in Tibet. In fact, uh, uh, Tibet is more or less pacified in a sense that people in Tibet, uh, Tibetans, even Tibetans in the plateau who do trade, they go to Lhasa, they bring their uh, produce, they sell in Lhasa, they go back to the plateau. They are making more money. They have uh, Wi-Fi, and mm -hmm. that's 5T, you know, mm -hmm. so their lives change completely. They are, they are, they are on the net all the time. Uh, Lhasa has become... Uh, relatively wealthy city in terms of Western China, completely different situation from 20, 25 years ago. There was a lot of investment. There's high-speed rail reaching Lhasa. Uh, if, you, if you take high-speed rail in Beijing, you can get to Lhasa in three stages. So this changed completely. So uh, the Tibetans are more lenient towards uh, Beijing, even though, as Peter said correctly, they definitely don't know how to deal with their ethnic minorities. There's no question about that. In Xinjiang, it's more complicated because the Uyghurs, even though 
they used to be a majority before. Now they are a minority in the capital, where everything is decided, in Urumqi. In Urumqi, I would say there is 70% Han and 30% Uyghurs. And the, the Chinese even built a, a sort of Disneyland Uyghur park in Urumqi, <laughs> which is a, used to be a Uyghur city. It's completely great. And Kashgar, complicated, because Kashgar, they, they were always more... Uh, let's say they were fiercer than other parts of um, uh, Xinjiang in terms of uh, contesting Beijing. But what do Chinese do? Same thing. They raise some uh, neighborhoods that they think are filthy, uh, overcrowded, or you know, harboring dodgy characters who may have uh, an Eastern Turkestan Islamic movement connection, all that. They build new condos for everybody. Uh, no, they clean the roads. They invest. In Kashgar is also Kashgar is becoming a mini Urumqi now. So it's, it's, it was a very picturesque city until it, it is. It's, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> uh, it used to have one of the most outstanding uh, markets in Asia, Peter. The, the Sunday market in Kashgar used to be something absolutely extraordinary. Now, is everything is of course controlled, is more organized, uh, it's cleaner, yes. the, the Chinese way, right? So. Yeah. So uh, they think that uh, what they are doing, what they did in Tibet, applies to Xinjiang. So that's it. let's let's give them uh, economic development, uh, economic opportunities, job opportunities for everybody. Uh, Han Chinese who are migrating and also locals, but the coexistence between the minorities, the Uyghurs and the Han Chinese, will always be very, very, very complicated. Very complicated because they are, they are there. There is a stratification. This was they the are, Soviet dream. This was Lenin's and Stalin's dream for the Soviet Union yes. that uh, you would make everybody wealthy and then they would forget about all these uh, cultural antecedents. It didn't work in the Soviet Union. <laughs> it didn't Union. work, Peter. Right. Let's see if it works in China. Well, but uh, the, the the financial firepower, Peter, is uh, is astonishing, isn't it? Yes. They can uh, if if they offer uh, basically if they offer jobs, uh, clean cities, and you know inter uh, okay opportunities for trade with everybody and and for people who and for Uyghurs who live in Xinjiang, they have new opportunities to trade with their Central Asian neighbors that they didn't have before, and for Central Asia, which has been landlocked and, and sort of passed by until the present. It's yes. also very exciting because it uh, is extremely exciting. It's a, uh, from my point of view, it's the most exciting region in the world now is what's happening in Central Asia, mm -hmm. it, because they have a lot of a, a lot of catching up to do, and at the same time, they are, let's say, the main beneficiaries of uh, the new Silk Roads, because with all these new connections from Xinjiang to Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Uzbekistan, etc. They are all profiting for more, more trade and commerce with Chinese firms, Chinese companies, yeah, etc. But Chinese tourism is coming. You name it. So it is. It's it's very very exciting. Yeah, it's always strange to think about that part of the world and to think about China and, and just to imagine what it would be like to live in a place where. The re, you know, for the last few decades, things have been getting better instead of yes. <laughs> inexorably worse and more 
you know, dystopian as we Westerners are having to to live through now. I I hope that I wish them success, and I would. I, it almost seems to me like the success of this project could is potentially has the ability to make the U.S. elites. Maybe I'm just this is a wishful thinking of the highest magnitude, but they will rethink their global dominance mindset as being no longer really feasible and perhaps that could that could lead to some sort of changes in the in the u.s because otherwise the politics here you know when you take it go away from the what's happening over in central asia and china everything is this this is a different way of they're trying to uplift and develop places and the u.s has tried to stop that from happening for so long and but they, what we're failing, and so That's what, are COVID, they, what are COVID they going to do? COVID is an opportunity. COVID should be a chance for people to begin to think globally. You know, here we are getting our third shots in America, and people haven't got their first shots in Africa. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the thinking has to change. There are plenty of people in America who see this. It's, the trouble is they're offset by people with more limited points of view and say, oh, we can plant a few terrorists in there and maybe we can get a bit of purchase again. The, really, this whole question of using terrorists for, for national policy has to end and because the, the issues are so big now, climate change, COVID. These are major, major challenges, and uh, either we will respond to them in a constructive way or we will go down. Well, with that, I think that uh, I want to thank you both for uh, this great conversation. Uh, This has been really wonderful, and John as well. Um, And I hope that we could uh, do this again soon sometime. So thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks very much, Peter and Nara. It was an enormous pleasure for me. Thank you. And for me, it was wonderful what you said at the end about the election, John. Wonderful. All right. I'm so happy that we were able to assemble this cast today. This is right in Peter's and Pepe's wheelhouse and mine, but I'm also really happy that John filled in those details about blind Sheik Abdel Rahman's imprisonment. Those are key details that I've wanted to explore in our article, but never was able to. Special thanks to Casey Moore for the art, JG Michael and Dana Chavaria for the sound editing, and Mock Orange for the music. Peace, everybody. 